Good morning, Highland. It is good to see you all here today. Um, whether you're here in our room or you're with us online, but especially Paisley. Congratulations. You have a whole room of brothers and sisters here. And uh, it's fitting that we're going to talk about prayer today. We've been in this series called Loud. Uh, it's about how do we find God in a noisy world. Our text is going to begin with Acts 16. But before we jump into that, I want you to hear just a little background. The, for the first century church, their prayer book was the book of Psalms, the Psalter. It's what they use to talk to God. In fact, that's how uh, most of Judaism speaks to God. And, and that tradition continues even today in many of the monastic traditions. In a lot of those traditions, they will pray psalm, 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 five, seven psalms a day. And when they get to the end, 150, they just turn right back and go back to one. So much so that many monks and friars have memorized the entire book of psalms by the end of their lives. It's how God's people learned to speak to God. And so um, I wanna talk about one story uh, that's, that's our text today. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This is from Acts chapter 16, 20 through 25. When they, that is Paul and Silas, had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they'd given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the inmost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Um, here's the setup to the piece of scripture that we just read. Paul and Silas have gone into town and their mission is clear and simple. They want to preach the gospel. And as they're going along telling people about Jesus and what Jesus has done, they keep getting annoyed and, and frustrated by this slave girl, this slave girl that's possessed by a demon. And this, this poor girl will not leave them alone. She keeps bothering them and harassing them and derailing them from their mission. And so it almost sounds like Paul and Silas perform an exorcism on this girl as much not to help her as to, to get her out of the way. And so she's freed from this oppression, still a slave, but she no longer has the demon, which means that she can no longer predict the future which is troublesome to the people that own her because they were making quite a bit of money on that gift. And so they're perturbed and bothered. They don't like what Paul and Silas have done. And we could probably spend some time talking about the ways in which a society can profit by doing evil things. And when you make money from evil things, it puts you in an uncomfortable position. That's not a sermon for today. You just can't miss that in the text. 
And so Paul and Silas are stripped, they're beaten, they're thrown into the inner part of the prison to ensure that they can't escape. On top of that, they are given stocks to lie in. And so it's no surprise at midnight that they're still awake. Everybody else should be asleep, but they can't sleep because the way the stocks are designed, you just can't get comfortable. There's no way for, for you to stretch out or to, or to relax. And when we find them at midnight, we find them singing and praying and everyone is listening. Now that story goes on. If you want to read it today, it finishes out in Acts 16. My point is simple. The words that Paul and Silas were saying, the singing and the prayers, I think those are the same thing. I don't think there's a whole lot of daylight between the worship they were doing and the prayers they were offering. I want us to think today that perhaps prayer is worship. No, I said that backwards. Worship is prayer. And that's what we've been doing all day. We've been singing songs that are either inspired by the Psalter or, or, or quoting the Psalms. Last night I had the opportunity to go to a concert. It was the Rebirth Brass Band. It was a New Orleans jazz band. If you know anything about New Orleans jazz bands, then you know it's the only place where a tuba player can be cool. There's no other place in the universe where that exists. But in a New Orleans jazz band, a tuba player is cool. I love New Orleans jazz bands. And so I'm going to this, this concert, and it's, it's, a, it's a live scene, and it's a lot of fun. And the band is probably not expecting like this West Texas crowd, this bunch of New Orleans kids that have come together. But they're making the most of it and they're, they're vibing with the audience and, 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 and New Orleans funk bands have this call and response that's gotta happen for them to have the energy and they're starting to get that and you can feel it. And you, when, you, when you, you're a New Orleans jazz band, you gotta play certain songs, right? You gotta do some Zydeco because that's what everybody expects. And you gotta do some of those classic New Orleans hits because that's what everybody expects. And then you gotta do some of your own stuff. And they were just vibing in that moment but then there's this, there's this time, they, they sang a song, performed a song, and it's like everybody in the band turned inward. The rest of the night is all performance, outward focusing, blasting this music into this crowd and feeling the energy coming back. But there's this moment, and it's just, it's one particular New Orleans hit. And then I realize that these kids, although they, they live in Fort Worth now, grew up in a city. And some of them were about four. And some of them were about 12. When the Trimay neighborhood that they lived in was flooded by Hurricane Katrina. And I think there was something about that song that changed the night. They turned inward and what was a concert and a blast and a lot of fun became prayer. Became a moment of transcendence because worship is speaking to God. Worship is prayer. Mm-hmm.
So my favorite Pixar movie is Inside Out. The reason I love it is because of the dialogue that happens, the internal and exterior internal dialogue. And if you've never seen the movie, it's about this little girl. And inside of this girl's soul or mind is this control panel that's governed by these five different emotions, anger, joy, sadness, disgust, and fear. But the best part of the movie, my favorite, favorite part of the movie, is at the end credits, right? Marvel has made like this brilliant move out of end credits where they can take you to the next movie that they know is coming. And if you're not a super nerd, you may not know what's going on in this moment because they'll reveal the next villain. And I'm like, huh? And the guy next to me is like, aww. <laughs> well, Inside Out is not like that, right? That just shows that everybody's got this control panel inside of them. Even cats and dogs have this control panel inside of them. And my favorite moment is there's this bus driver, and he's stuck in traffic, and there's kids yelling behind him. And then you get to peer inside of him, and all he has, instead of all the emotions, is just five angers. And they've all got this steering wheel on the horn, and they're blaring on the horn, and their heads are exploding. I love that moment because it's true. The outrage machine is teaching you to have fewer and more concise emotions. But that's not how you were created. You were created to be fully human. But I wonder sometimes if you are on the outside looking in, if what we do together in this assembly actually grasps the full breadth that God offers us in prayer. Or if, like the bus driver, but different, the only emotion that we can express in this room is joy. I wonder if we're guilty of that sometimes. But the Psalter, the Psalms, are not just Psalms of praise because our bodies need the full range of expression to speak to God. I want you to understand that. Your body needs to be able to communicate to your heavenly Father the full range of the emotions that you have been given. And to do anything else is to truncate your relationship with God. Our refusal to express the harder things to God is a form of unbelief. It's a form of unfaithfulness because in effect what it says is I can't trust you with this. You can take all my joy, you can take all my praise, but if I have a little bit of doubt, I'm not sure I can take that to you, God. I don't think you're capable. And this is where the Psalter teaches us how to speak to God. Now, we've talked a little bit throughout the course of this series. You may just be on a chit-chat level with God right now. You don't know how to do prayer. You're not into it yet. You've never really explored this very much in your spiritual life. And so mostly what you say I talk to God about is just like kind of how your day's going, kind of what you hope for the future, kind of some regrets that you have. Like, I get it. That's fine. If that's where you are, that's fine. I just want you to hear in this moment that God is calling you to something more. And embedded in that moreness is trust. That God will faithfully handle all the things that you can throw. That God will faithfully contain all of the hard things in your life. 
Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Can God handle your hard things? Can God handle hard words or feelings, doubt, discouragement, fear, and disappointment? I think that God can. But I think unlike this psalm, I think what we try to do is get ourselves washed up before we come to God, cleanse ourselves a little bit so that we can come on equal footing to God. But that's not real. It's something else. The reason that we know this is true, not just because the psalmist in Psalm 51 speaks that truth to us, but Jesus uses it in his most serious moment. As Jesus is dying on the cross, he says the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the gospel writer, he first puts it in Aramaic and then translates it for us. He didn't have to do that. He could have just translated what it was, but there was something about the very words that Jesus says on the cross. He wants to capture that moment and deliver it for us to experience. And it might be speaking of something of the separation that Jesus was experiencing there, the pain and the shame and the burden of carrying humanity's sins. That could have been what Jesus is saying, is that the distance between him and God felt like he was being forsaken. But I think there's something more. Because Jesus wasn't just praying. Jesus was singing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is Psalm 22. Jesus is quoting the first line of an expression that he knew growing up since childhood. And the end of that psalm ends with, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. It is an act of courage to speak the truth to God. It's an act of intimacy to speak the truth to God. It's an act of unfaithfulness to only allow God joy. Because as we've experienced this morning, prayer, worship is prayer, but prayer is also worship, to approach the throne with intimate knowingness is to acknowledge who God is for you and for the world. Let's sing to that God together. So, so prayer is worship. And worship is prayer. I want us to think for just a minute about the end of worship. And I don't mean the end like when it ceases, right? I think the the glimpses that we have of the throne room of God is that heaven is a noisy place. That there are beings that were created from the beginning of time to just ascribe who God is to name what God is, all day long, night and day, they shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The world is full 
of God's glory. So I don't want to talk about the end of worship as if there's some moment when that may cease. I want to talk about the telos of worship, the, the purpose of worship. And I'm borrowing this from Brother Randy. I think this is his. If it's not, he stole it from someone else. Take it up with him. I'm stealing it from Randy. That's what I know. That the telos of worship, the purpose, the end of worship is to say the name of God. And you might be saying to yourself, well, we, we know the names of God. We've, the Old Testament is littered with the names of God. Jehovah, Jireh, El, El Shaddai, El Elyon. And even there's this moment, if you know your Bible, that Moses asks, what, what do I call you if they ask me who you are? What should I tell the Egyptians? And God says what we translate as Yahweh, which means I am, the ch- that's which, that which I am. But in Hebrew, the present and the future can only be determined by context. And so it's very possible that God doesn't really give Moses the answer he's hoping for because it could be that his reply is, I'm about to show them who I am. If you know your Bible, you know that what follows next is plague after plague as Yahweh one by one battles the Egyptian gods and is victorious. The telos of what we do began in prairie, uh, the prairies of Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. As a shepherd boy with his harp began writing songs to God. And that story continues as the poet walks into the temple of the Lord and cannot help but to see its grandeur and its beauty. Another poet walks into that very same temple and notices the birds that are nesting at the top of the colonnades and sings of their beauty. That story is continued in the early disciples as Philippians chapter 2 exalts Christ as the risen God. And even now, poets still explore their souls in the depths of their heart to find the words to say God. To say the name of God is the telos of worship. It's the only thing that's worth saying in this universe. In fact, The cosmos was created to describe, ascribe glory to God. The psalmist would tell us that if if you didn't lift your voice to praise Yahweh, that even the stones would cry out below you to speak of the glory of God. There are the thrumming sound of our sun in the center of our solar system. It hums in this very deep, throbbing note. It is the voice of the cosmos singing praise to the universe of the glory of our God. The background radiation of the first moments of creation is a song. I think of it as the bass note. It's the tuba (laughs) that ascribes the glory of God. It's the only thing the universe was created for 
to say the name God. And it's the only thing in the universe that we can't say. You can't plumb the depth of who God is. You can't describe the end of God's mercy. You can't even fathom the edges of God's love. His love endures forever. It's a concept that is beyond our own imaginations and minds. It's the one thing that we can't say. It is a a well that we cannot dive to the bottom of. It's not that God is unknowable. It's just that his mystery endures from now until the end of time. It's the only thing worth saying, and it's the one thing that we cannot say. But if we could, if we could, if we figure out how to say the name of God, there would be nothing left to say. It would be the final word in the universe. The telos of worship, the end of worship, is to speak the name of God. It's the gospel story that began in creation, fulfilled in the cross, and will be our voice forever and ever.